Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I hope you are having a wonderful day and we are on to another episode. My name is Dwayne Osterland and I'm your host. And our guest today is Alex Korb. He is a neuroscientist, coach, and best-selling author of The Upward Spiral. He has a PhD in neuroscience and is an adjunct assistant professor at UCLA. And he is also the founder of The Upward Spiral Method, where he helps purpose-driven entrepreneurs and professionals conquer unnecessary overthinking, stress, and self-doubt. He has a wealth of experience in yoga, mindfulness, physical fitness, and even stand-up comedy, which we didn't get too much into on this episode, but maybe we should have. But what we're going to talk about is about the neuroscience of addiction and habit change. So the reason I wanted Dr. Alex Korb to come on and talk about his book is I had heard him on another podcast and the story behind why he wrote the book, but you'll get that in the episode as you listen to it, which is really, really powerful and how he really wanted to create something that could help people who were struggling with depression, move upwards towards health and, and feeling better and how they could do that in small ways and be able to apply the neuroscience to making positive change in their life. So I think it's a great conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it. I know I did. And once again, if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That'd be great. I do read them. They mean a lot to me. So thank you everyone who has done that. I really appreciate it. And you can also now check us out on Instagram at the Addicted Mind podcast. So click on that. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. All right, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Alex Korb, and he is author of what I think is an awesome book, The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. And Alex, before we started, we were just talking about, you know, why I wanted you on the podcast. And the reason I wanted you here is because I, I had heard you on another podcast and your story was really profound of why you wrote this book. And then not only that, the information in the book based on neuroscience is so 
powerful. So Alex, let's just jump in and tell me a little bit about you and we'll get into what motivated you to write this book and the story behind it and go from there. Yeah. Well, it's great to be here and to reach out to your audience. So I'm a neuroscientist. I've studied the brain now for like over 20 years. And originally it was just because the brain was cool. <laughs> like in everything right. I learned cool. about, right. Like I, I majored in neuroscience mainly because like I took a neuroscience class like, Oh, this is fascinating. And like the guy across the hall from me was majoring in neuroscience and he convinced me to major in neuroscience. I was like, Oh, this is just like really interesting stuff. And it's cool. I mean, I do think at some deeper level, as with, with most people who are motivated to understand the brain and mental health, like you're, you're just trying to figure out what's wrong with yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I totally relate to that because that's one of the reasons I'm a therapist. Right. Oh yeah. Right. But so like, I mean, I do think there's some level of like, oh, like why, you know, do I feel really motivated and focused sometimes and other times feel like everything is like pointless and meaningless and you have no energy. And a lot of that could be explained by what's happening in the brain. Right. But for the most part, it was just this like really cool puzzle that I wanted to figure out. And I ended up working at the UCLA Brain Mapping Center doing wow. fMRI research. And uh, that was great. And then at the same time, about a year after I graduated college, I started coaching the UCLA women's ultimate Frisbee team. Oh, wow. Little, little right turn there in the story that maybe people weren't expecting, but it was just like a super fun thing that I was doing. I played ultimate Frisbee in college and it was just this awesome experience. And it's one of the most fun experiences of my life. So I you're doing still... fMRIs during, during the day and then playing right. ultimate frisbee on the other side of that. I mean, that's a great combination. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I still coaching it to this day. We actually just competed in the national championships last week. Wow. So it's still, still going strong. But while it was just like, it's been this amazing experience, this part, unfortunately, isn't a happy story. Right. Because back... In the first year I started coaching, there was this one girl, Mandy, who was just an amazing athlete, but she was kind of an enigma to me because she would just come up to me sometimes and be like, oh, I'm sick. Is it okay if I just sit out the rest of practice? And I was like, but you were just sprinting around fast all over the place and had no problem. Like, and now's the fun part right. where we scrimmage. Like, you're going to skip out on that. Like, it was strange. Or she would just miss practice sometimes. And I couldn't really figure it out. And it wasn't until several months later that she revealed that she was suffering from a deeper illness of depression. And yeah. it was just too, you know, hard or complicated for her to just explain that. That, like, she just couldn't have the energy or the motivation to even come to practice sometimes. Yeah. And, and I think that can be hard for people to understand what depression looks like if you haven't yeah. struggled with depression. Yeah. And it actually really fundamentally changed my perception 
of what depression is and looks like. Cause I, I think like most people have this belief that like, well, yeah, you get depressed when bad things happen to you or you, you just have a depressing life, but she was smart and talented and friendly and had a great sense of humor. Although, you know, maybe I just say that because she laughed at all of my stupid jokes. But, you know, right. she's good at making other people laugh as well. And she had lots of friends and, you know, she was at UCLA. But she had this major depression and had been depressed for a long time. And I encouraged her to like, well, you should keep trying to come to practice. She saw how valuable the being part of the team was both for the, the connection yeah. and just the physical activity, but also just like for something to do to like get her out of her room and out of her own head. And she recognized that this was important and, and really committed to doing it and it really helped her. But unfortunately it wasn't, quite enough. And even though she was getting the best treatment, she was seeing a psychologist and she was on medication and had a lot of treatment at, um, the following year in the fall of her sophomore year, she ended up taking her own life. And that's so sad. Yeah, it was, it was tragic and heartbreaking. And I was still like, it was wonderful to be a part of the team still and like oh we everyone wanted to come to practice and be with each other because it's wonderful you know it's it's good to be around people who are going through the same situation as you but like during the day i was at my regular job at the brain mapping center doing research and it made me question like what like i'm just sort of like playing around with this because it's some fun puzzle but like what's the meaning of it, what's like the deeper purpose. And I realized like, oh, I could actually use this opportunity to try and understand what's happening in the brain and depression on a deeper level and be able to better help people like her. Was her suicide, was that a surprise to you? Was it kind of like, just like you knew she was depressed, but to go to that space where you want to end your own life. Was that, yeah, I guess a a surprise or kind of shocking. I guess any suicide is shocking, but I'm just wondering, like, did it make sense or it it had to just leave you confused? It was, I would say it was, it was totally shocking at the time. In retrospect, I could see, oh, right. Like it, it sort of made some sense. I mean, she like, just she'd been so depressed for so long, but there wasn't any like inciting incident. And so like, well, she's, you know, lasted this long, like, and she seems okay and everything. And I remember someone said something at a memorial service, another student spoke and it really stuck with me. And, And they described it as like, she fought a battle every day against depression and she lost that battle once. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of made me think about how you can never really know the depths of despair 
and difficulty that someone else is going through. And she knew how difficult it was for her, but like, because she cared so much about her friends and other people, like she didn't want to burden them with it. Yeah. And it's, it's a fine line between like, well, seeking help or, you know, suppressing things because she was seeking help and she was, you know, talking to people about it and she was in therapy and in treatment and on medication, but just she knew that she wasn't able to control these moods and she didn't want that to drag down the happiness, you know, of everyone else in her life but also like other people being happy made her happy. And so it's like, it's a, it's a complicated issue, but in, in retrospect, yeah, she was in a very fragile place. Can you talk about that? Maybe a little bit from a neuroscience perspective of that. I, I want to call it the pain of depression, because I think if someone hasn't struggled with this kind of depression, it's really hard to conceptualize how painful it, actually is right yeah it's from the outside it's very difficult to understand because you're like yeah. what's what do you, what's the problem like you have all these friends and you're smart and talented and you have parents that care about you and you have your whole life ahead of you and you're getting a degree you know from ucla and the really terrible thing about depression is in the brain there's a sort of disconnect between what's happening in your life and your ability to appreciate and enjoy that. And in some ways, having all of these wonderful things in your life that you just don't feel that spark of joy for can almost make it worse because you're like, what's, you know, what's wrong with me? Like I have all these friends and I just don't, you know, feel, I can't feel uh, connected. You don't feel it. And it like the fact that it's so like tantalizingly close, but it just doesn't spark the same feelings that perhaps it used to, or they think it should is really challenging. Yeah. And that, I think that disconnect also is what leads people to like, oh, well, isolate a little bit. Like, I don't want to be fake and like pretend that I'm happy all the time, but nor do I want to hurt all these people that I love by being depressed and sad because it doesn't make sense to me. And so, okay, I can at least, you know, try and deal with it, but I don't want to drag them down with me. So there's and also this caring part where you're caring at the same time. You can recognize it kind of on a cognitive level, but maybe for someone who hasn't, you know, struggled with depression, these kind of rewarding feelings are just kind of part of life. They're so natural. We're just getting them. We're, you know, we're going out to right. the practice and we kind of feel that exhilaration that, oh, it's so fun to be here. But for someone who's depressed, they just don't get that. So they go to the practice right. and then they're, they're not feeling anything. Is that, is that accurate what I'm saying? Yeah. They're the things that they used to enjoy just don't have the same pleasure 
anymore and your energy levels can go down. So you get fatigued really easy. Like you might be in really good physical shape as she was, but just like everything feels so effortful and like goals and getting stuff done that used to just sort of come a little bit more effortlessly now feels like this long, hard slog. And it's this long, hard slog that also feels pointless and meaningless. But, you know, you just sort of keep going out of resilience, not wanting to give in to that. But it's really hard to see from the outside and also to understand if you haven't experienced it. Because we all have these sort of periods where we, you know, skirt the edge of depression, where you start to go into a downward spiral where things, you know, feel pointless and meaningless, you know, after a breakup or after you lose your job. And we learn coping skills with that. Oh, we tell ourselves, oh, okay, it's just temporary. It'll get better. Or we say, okay, well, I'll just ignore it for a few days and it'll just, you know, make sure I exercise and get good sleep. And most of us are, are lucky enough that our brains allow us to escape that downward spiral. And one of the, the challenging things is then, you know, we try and give advice to other people. Oh, you know what really helped me is just think positively. Or like, oh, you right. know what really helped me is like just go for a run. And like those are useful tools, but it's like a basketball player who's like six, eight and can easily dunk just telling to, you know, people who are, you know, my height or, you know, right. uh, normal size people. Like, oh, it's easy. You just, yeah. You just run and then you, you jump and you, you dunk the basketball. Like, I don't understand like what's wrong. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sort of almost hurtful the way, because, you know, often if you're depressed, like, that's the way your brain used to work too. And you're like, yeah, I don't, I, I used to be able to do that. I don't understand it. And people can feel very broken and disconnected. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get a PhD in neuroscience to try and understand like what's actually happening in the brain in depression so that we can fix it or change it or help people realize like, no, it's not something like it's not some moral failing yeah. that you're just not trying hard enough. It's the biology and you don't need to blame yourself or feel guilty for having it. And even Which though just it's, adds it's to biology, more depression, I would imagine like, you know, right. you're just like, I, I can't do this. There must be something wrong with me. I, I must be bad. Why can't? And you just want to isolate more, pull back right. more. And it's like, it's even though it is, you know, based in biology, it's not easily visible in something you can point to. Like if you yeah. had a, a, you know, broken leg and a cast and you're trying to play basketball and you're like, oh, I can't play basketball. And you could be like, see, we've got my cast on. And people are like, oh, okay, I get it. But like other people don't get it because you look totally fine and you don't get it either because you're like, I don't understand why I can't feel these things or why I can't do it. And that's where the neuroscience is so powerful to try and uncover and illuminate what's going on. Right. So what are we beginning to, to find here with depression to really understand it and to help people kind of move out of that or 
get support in a way that works? Yeah. Well, one of the things I first discovered while studying the neuroscience of depression in grad school was that it's much more complex than we tend to think and that even most doctors fully appreciate. Most people are like, oh yeah, it's something going on with your brain. Okay. So just, you know, take this pill and rebalance your brain. And like, that's such a extremely simplistic story that is often unhelpful. (laughs) And one of my original goals is like, well, there's got to be something we can measure about the brain that would diagnose people with depression. Like, oh, do an EEG and say, oh, you have depression. You should get this medication or that. And it turns out, nope, <laughs> we can't diagnose the brain with depression through EEG or MRI. And ultimately, that led me to this conclusion. Like, there's nothing technically wrong with the brain and depression or broken with the brain and depression. It's, it is based in biology and what is happening with your brain, but it's not useful to describe it as your brain being broken. It's a problem with the tuning and the communication of the thinking and feeling and habit and reward circuits in your brain. is just slightly off. And I like to describe this, like if you have, a circuit like a microphone and connected to a speaker and the volume is turned up a little too high on the speaker or the microphone is a little too sensitive or you just shout too loudly in it or it's oriented in a particular way that can lead to this screeching feedback that is a clear and obvious objective problem you're like this is not how it's supposed to work right and yet it's not broken. Like the microphone isn't broken. There's nothing wrong with the speaker. They're all working exactly as they're supposed to. It's just, oh, the tuning is a little bit off. And therefore the solution is not, oh, you need a new microphone or like the solution can actually be as simple as like, oh, you just need to turn down the volume on the speaker a little bit. Or you just need to realize, oh, you have a really sensitive microphone, which isn't inherently bad just don't shout into it and that's the same when it comes to all these different brain circuits some of these circuits the tuning was governed by genetics or early childhood experiences and some of them is just like that's how the human brain works and you can't necessarily change everything about it but you can become aware of oh, how sensitive my different circuits are and change a little bit of my thought patterns or my habits so I'm not sending myself into this downward spiral. And also, through some of these small changes in our thoughts or our actions or interactions or environment, we can start to actually change the activity and chemistry of these various circuits to actually you know, turn the volume down on some of these things or increase the volume on, you know, positive emotions and change this dynamic balance. So when you're talking about that, it makes me think that these are not huge things you have to do. Like when you say, like, I just have to adjust the volume a little bit here and maybe the speaker a little bit here. And, and it's, it's, it's much smaller 
which sounds to me like, like you said, you know, like looking at dunking that basket, it's just so huge. It's just undoable. Right. I, I, that's not going to happen for me. Right. Not where I am in yeah. this space that I'm mm-hmm. in. I'm just going to, I just, I, I'm not going to attempt that because it's just, it's impossible right. for me. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest problems, I mean, with most people seeking help, but also how a lot of people in the medical system treat depression or think and conceptualize about depression. Like you're going to have to make all these huge life changes. And that seems very daunting. So this came up a lot when I was like doing research for the upward spiral, particularly around the topic of exercise. Right. So exercise or just physical activity and moving your body. It's a really powerful way to enhance neuroplasticity. So your brain can be rewired and to reduce the stress hormone cortisol and to change the serotonin system and the dopamine system. And what I was trying to understand is that there was this conflict in a lot of the papers. Some people were saying like, oh, exercise is really good for depression. Other people were saying like, oh, no, exercise isn't really that useful for depression. I was like, how do I square these things away? Yeah. And the papers that were talking about, oh, it's really good for depression were like scientific studies where they, you know, brought people into a lab and you can put them on a treadmill or something. You can measure, you know, their change in mood. You can measure different parts about their brain. You're like, oh, yeah, it improves mood and reduces stress and all this stuff. And then there are a lot of medical studies where they thought of it as like a prescription for medication or for exercise. So someone could come in to their office and they'd be like, okay, well, I have 15 minutes to see them. I could either prescribe them this, you know, SSRI or I could prescribe them some course of exercise. Like, oh, you got to exercise 45 minutes, three times a week and so on. And how do they turn out? And if you think of it as like a prescription for exercise, well, that doesn't usually work because in order to get a quote unquote like effective dose, you got to do a lot of exercise. And if you prescribe that to a lot of people, they just don't do it. Yeah. So it's like, yes, if, if you are a person who is suffering from depression and wondering, will moving my body help me? That is a very different question than I'm a doctor and someone is coming to me and is depressed. Should I write them a prescription for exercise? And so that's why I really think it's crucial for people to understand their brains because a lot of like the, the constraints that a doctor has are very different than what you personally yeah, are going through. Yeah, that makes through. a lot of sense. And so there were some studies that showed like, yeah, exercise works, but only if you do it for, you know, three times or five times a week for a moderate intensity of 45 minutes. And for a lot of people, it's like, oh, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. So I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. And I like to say, well, going for a walk around the block, like once a day or a couple times a week, that's not going to solve or eliminate your depression but it's a heck of a lot better than just sitting on the couch the whole time telling yourself, well, that's pointless. That's not going to solve everything. And so in 
the medical field, they're often trying to like look for like, what's the one treatment that's going to fix everything. And that is an unhelpful way of thinking about it. What's much more helpful is to recognize like, oh, what are the little tiny changes you can make that are different than the default that you are, are currently choosing that's probably sustaining your depression or even making things worse. And all you need to do is make one little tiny change, like even walking around the block, that's going to change the brain in many ways. One, it's physical activity. Two, it's sunlight. And that's going to change your circadian rhythms and sleep and everything. Three, it was an active decision that you made and then took action on. You completed a goal and a task that you intended to, and that modulates the dopamine system. And on its own, that's not going to solve everything. But then maybe tomorrow or the next day makes it a little bit easier yeah. to make more positive choices. And that's how you create an upward spiral. Yeah. So these really small steps, but like you're saying, they, they tweak the brain on many different levels. Like I didn't even think about that, you know, like getting out in the sunlight, the accomplishment of this small, tiny goal just shifts that just a tiny bit that moves you upward just a little bit more and it's doable, right? I mean, I think for many of us, yeah. I don't know my experience, it's like, I'm going to go do this thing and my old habits get in the way and I find that I, I do it. And then all of a sudden I'm stuck back in my old way of being. I mean, it doesn't seem like the brain right. totally wants to change that easy, but it is changeable. No, it doesn't want to change. And this is one of the ways that it's so helpful to understand how the human brain works, because when you understand the just features of the human brain, it's sometimes easier to treat yourself with compassion because you realize, oh, this is not something wrong with me. <laughs> like, this is just how the human brain works. <laughs> and so that's why I spend like a lot of time in, in the book, like explaining how the brain works in general. When I, when I'm coaching people, we often talk about like, People think there's something wrong with them or broken. I'm like, nope, that's just part of being human. So one of the deepest parts of the brain, the dorsal striatum, it's very close to the brainstem. It evolved 200 million years ago. Like the dinosaurs, that's how they were getting around and doing things. And it evolved based on the principle of, well, you know, the world is complicated. How do you know what to do? Well, you know you're alive now. So I guess you should just keep doing whatever you have been doing. And that, you know, the evolutionary pressure to survive and reproduce like mm, that, that created that brain region, and it gets you pretty far in the right. world. And so we, as humans have more advanced machinery for emotions and, you know, rational thinking and strategic planning. And those are great tools of the brain as well, but they coexist with these deeper regions that are much older processors and often fu function much more quickly than our, you know, sort of rational, thoughtful decision-making. And so our brain, that part of our brain resists change, yeah, particularly big changes, 
because we're like, oh, I need to make this big, huge change. And that big, huge change is different from what you've been doing before. And then that increases stress. And that increased stress actually activates your old habits, which pull you back. And so this is one of the ways in which making small changes can be really powerful because if you try and make one big, huge change in everything, then, well, it's probably going to fail. <laughs> and then you're yeah. going to think, oh, that doesn't work. And so it's sort of like changing the direction of a ship. You have this big, huge ship. It has a lot of inertia. You don't just stop it. You don't put up a barrier and be like, no, stop. Right. Because then it's going to smash right through that barrier. No, it just, you just start turning it slowly. slowly a little take piece at a time. Several miles. Right. Like it, take, it might take several miles for it to turn, but it turns. Uh, like <laughs> it, it turns. Right. And, and, but the inertia is just a fact of physics. Like it is something that exists. It might be causing problems because you're like, oh, it's going to take us so long to turn around. Okay. But you can't change physics. So it's helpful to understand, oh, okay, well, here's what physics, how physics works. And these are my limitations. And it's important to me to turn around. Okay. Well, then it'll just take a while, but you can still do it. And the same is true of the brain. It's very easy to jump to these like black or white conclusions. Why? Because that helps the brain navigate through a complicated world. But so, so sometimes when we try to change and fix everything, we're like, I can't. And we throw up our hands in despair. But if you understand like, no, change is possible. It's difficult because of how the human brain works. And yeah, that's frustrating because you want to change. Right. But it's okay. We love the like, status you quo. Can <laughs> deep making, right. You can keep making small changes. And this part of the brain, even though it's getting in your way now, you can realize like, well, it's, it's not existing just to make my life worse. It's trying to protect you. And for the most part, it's doing a fantastic job. It's just like, oh, this little thing that's getting in the way, sort of like a relationship. Like your mom saying, oh, you should wear a jacket. Oh, buggy, you, you're gonna get cold, you're gonna catch cold. And you could, you could recognize like, oh, it's annoying that my mom is like trying to tell me what to do. Okay, but like you can also recognize that 98% of what she does for you is wonderful and nurturing and caring. It's like, oh, I just don't like this one little piece. But realizing, oh, this part of the brain, okay, it's, it's trying to help me. And for the most part, it succeeds at that. Then I don't get so angry at myself or resentful at my brain. And I can appreciate it for what it's doing for me. And... Recognize that, oh, just by making a little change, I can start to change my brain and my habit circuit and my motion circuits might freak out, try and pull me back. And then I can just reassure them. Right. <laughs> because unfortunately, what happens for most people is like we make a change and then that stress pulls us back into the old habit of self-criticism. And then that habit of self-criticism, you know, and it creates this whole downward spiral. And so it's never just one little thing. There are so many different things to rewire. And sometimes we see that as overwhelming. Oh my God, I have so many different things I have to change. But I like to think of it as like, no. Oh, you can make, there's so many different little changes in any of these 
places. There's not one correct way to do it. You could start here or here and just worry about making one little tiny change somewhere. And then you can figure out the rest later. Right. And even just like I'm thinking right now is you just the perspective taking of just seeing your brain in this way in and of itself is a change. And in and of itself gives you that changes how you're going to perceive and and what thoughts you have. I mean, even, yeah, just doing this and which is, it's not huge, but it's, it's not a huge thing, but it is a huge thing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. No, it's, that's like, to me, when I started writing the book, it was like intuitively obvious why neuroscience was interesting. It was like, it's just interesting. But my editor was like, why are you spending so much time like explaining how the brain works? Like just tell people what to do. She's probably tired of hearing all these interviews by throwing <laughs> under the bus. But like what I realized is, oh, it's so fundamentally important to understand yourself. Yeah. And like the neuroscience is is a way to do that. And it's extremely empowering because in the sort of the traditional models, like, oh, well, your brain is broken and you got to go see someone else to fix it. And like, imagine if your car, if you had no idea how your car worked whatsoever, and some days you just got in your car and it just didn't go anywhere. Like, okay, you got to call a tow truck and fix it. Well, you know, you can put gas in your car or charge it with electricity. Like if you understand some basics, you're like, oh, okay, I forgot to put gas in it. Or like, oh, I just need air in the tires. Or like, oh, I just, you know, need some jumper cables. Like there are certain things that if you just understood some very simple things with your car, then you could either fix them or not have a problem in the first place. Like if you didn't have a four-wheel drive car and you kept trying to drive off road and you're like, oh, my car keeps breaking. Oh, well... Right. Like you should stay on the road. And if you just realize that, like, oh, then I, I don't have a problem because I stopped creating that problem for myself. And right. Cause you understand people it. when they hear me talk. Right. And sometimes people, when they hear me talk, they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're against the medical establishment. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, it's like just teaching someone the basics about how their car works is not saying, oh, you're trying to, you're against mechanics. Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> no, there sense. are many things about how your car works. Like you could just fix or prevent it from having a problem in the first place. And if you can't figure out what's wrong or you need more help, like that's fine. There's professionals who can help you. Now, should you start by trying to figure it out yourself or should you start by going to a professional, the choice is up to you. Do you feel capable of making changes? Great. Try making some changes and see how far you get. But it's very empowering to understand that instead of just thinking, oh, well, I got, there's nothing I can do except, you know, talk to this person for 15 minutes and take a pill. But like, yeah, a pill can be extremely helpful. Right. It, you know, 30, 40% of people solves the problem. We shouldn't have a stigma against taking medication. That's just a different way yeah. of modulating the brain. There's one of, and one of many ways 
so there should neither be a stigma against medication nor this belief that like that's the only way it's just one way of many different ways to modulate brain activity and chemistry yeah absolutely and I, I was thinking too about how you know making these these small changes you know changes the brain over time and we create these new kind of habits that then kind of keep pulling us upward one question I want to ask you though was since this is the addicted mind podcast we talk a lot about addiction and a lot mm -hmm. of people who struggle with addiction end up not finding maybe a way out of depression and find some other alternative to just alleviate that pain. And I wonder if you right. can kind of talk about how those interact with each other. And Oh, yeah. It's huge. I mean, it's hugely interactive because like the reason why addiction is a problem is very much intricately related to anxiety and depression, essentially. Like whether you, and this is again, one of the problems with like having these like bright line diagnoses, like, well, do I technically have depression or not? Do I have anxiety or do I just have an addiction? Like the brain doesn't make these strict distinctions. What happens in addiction is you have the strong negative emotions and activation of the emotional circuitry in the brain and the stress response and through accident or intention, you've figured out, oh, this particular substance helps me not feel those negative emotions. And that's the, where the problem comes is, is because these things do work right? to reduce stress or to distract you from your pain or anxiety. And because they work, your brain is like, oh, great. That's the simplest answer because there's another part of the brain so there's the dorsal striatum which is trying to get you to do what you've always done and then very closely next to that is the nucleus accumbens which is trying to get you to do what's most immediately pleasurable and find the easiest path and so if you're feeling this tension and anxiety and stress you might not even be aware of it but it's active in your brain and you're like oh, I could go to therapy for a long time. And yeah, that would take a year or two to fix it. And your friend is like, oh, here, you know, have a beer or like have a hit of this or whatever. And then, oh, <laughs> then all of a sudden it gives you that immediate feedback and relief and your brain that releases a lot of dopamine and your brain is like, oh, let's do that again. And, and you do that again because it works. But the problem is that it doesn't, it only works in the short term and it doesn't actually solve the problem, but you do it because it works. It's just that the more that you do it, well, the chemicals can actually themselves cause changes in your brain, which make you more dependent. But also the more that you repeat an action, the more that it gets strongly wired in the dorsal striatum so that every subsequent time, now, when you're stressed, your brain is like, ah, I know the answer. Let's have another beer. Right. And because that's wired in your dorsal striatum, at some point, if you say, no, 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 beer is causing problems, then you choosing not to do that habit increases your stress. And so the, the, these unfortunate coping habits that we get stuck in are 
they help, but only in the short term. And once they get trained into our brain, not doing them causes stress. And that stress pushes us and compels us to do them. And that's why it's so hard to break out. So we get caught in these habitual loops. Our brain is trying to stay with the status quo. It says, this works. This is easy. I don't have to make another calculation about this. Just go do this. Mm. And it pushes us that direction. And then we get caught in it. But what I hear you also saying on the other side of it is if we can make small changes, we can start to change that part of the brain that wants to keep us in that status quo slowly over time and get a different different right. reward because if you if you try and change it right if you try and change it dramatically like no i'm not going to have any alcohol and then all of a sudden you have more stress and all of your other habits your habits of self-criticism they get active you're like oh you're you're weak you're going to give up or whatever and that stresses you out more which pushes you you know more to falling back on your old you know addictive habit but if you can have compassion for yourself and train that as a habit and say, oh, I know it's okay. It's difficult. I know you really want to fall back and it's okay that you want, because sometimes we get mad at ourselves or criticize ourselves for having feelings yeah, or for having doubts. And it's like, you can't control the random crap that pops up into your head and it's okay to have those thoughts and have those feelings, just take a different action. And when you're really feeling compelled or pulled into those old addictive habits, the solution is, well, just do anything other than exactly what your habit wants to get you to do. And as long as you're doing something else, oh, you may as well do one of these you know, menu of options that science has shown that helps calm down the stress response and calm down the amygdala. Oh, so that your old habit isn't pulling you quite so hard. Yeah. Like there's a great study where they took people who were addicted to cigarettes and said, okay, you can't smoke for 24 hours. And then they stuck them inside an fMRI scanner and show them pictures of cigarettes, and you see, oh, you know, their dorsal striatum is really making them have cravings. But if before you did that, you give people 10 minutes on an exercise bike, then their dorsal striatum just doesn't react quite as strongly, and their cravings aren't quite so high. So, yeah, 10 minutes of exercise, that's not going to cure them of their addiction, but it then makes it a little bit easier next time to make more positive choices. And then the next time you continue to make those positive and they, choices. they build so on we, each other over time. And that goes exactly. to the, the, the title of your book. And I'm just wondering, why did you decide on this title, the upward spiral? And, and what does that symbolize to you? Right. Well, because I think we all understand inherently this idea of a downward spiral where like, oh, some thought pops into your head. And so you change your actions and then that makes you feel worse. And then you it's easy to get stuck in so many ways. And addiction and depression, these are sort of examples of like how we get stuck. And But those happen because the brain is this dynamic system 
that feeds back on itself. And fortunately, because of that, those changes actually work in the other direction. Like, yes, your thoughts influence your feelings and your actions. And if, you know, negative thoughts can lead to negative feelings, which change negative actions and so on. But if you can just like make one little small tweak so that the action you take is a little bit better than the default that you would have taken otherwise, well, then you can start to change your thoughts and your actions. And that view of the upward spiral is that's been popularized in psychology by this psychologist, Barbara Fredrickson. And I just realized like, oh, but that's like, as a neuroscientist, I like to think of it in terms of the brain and not just like thoughts and feelings and actions. What you are doing when you make these small positive changes is that you are changing the activity and chemistry of these key brain circuits and how they're communicating. And those small brain changes make it easier <laughs> to make further positive life changes. And so that felt to me really powerful, this idea like you don't need to figure out all of your problems all at once. You just need to make one little tiny change and then that'll make the next change easier and the next and that creates an upward spiral. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I love the analogy. I just think of like, you know, getting to a mountaintop and trying to go straight up the mountain is just you're it's just you're going right. to collapse but if if you have a spiraled loop like you see roads you know they spiral up the mountain it takes right. longer to get to the top but you do get to the top and you you make well, it up there the way that i like to think of it right it's really and in my coaching i really focus on it comes down to two things what's important to you and what your limitations are what you can control and it might be really important to you to get to the top of the mountain, just like someone who's depressed. Like, I, I right. want to not be depressed anymore. Okay, great. No one is telling you that you have to take an indirect road or a hard road. Feel free to take the shortest, quickest road to get there. So, okay, I'll just go straight up the mountain. Oh, but I can't do that. My car doesn't drive straight up the mountain. Oh, okay. So you can't do that? It might be important. Well, you can drive a more circuitous route to get there. And then you're like, oh, but that's longer. Okay, well, can you do it another way? If so, do it. And if not, then the only useful path forward is acceptance and redirect your energy towards something you actually can do. Not to torture yourself to just make it harder and more difficult and unnecessary, but like that's the only path forward. And one of the things when it comes to addiction is the path out often requires the realization of like, okay, well, there's this, when I'm feeling stress, the easiest, seemingly easiest thing to do is just fall back on my addiction, right? I, that's the fastest way to feel better quickly. The question is, why wouldn't you do that? Oh, is that getting in the way of something that's actually really important to you, like your family or your job or having an impact on the world or just being the kind of person you want to be? Like, what is that mountaintop that you're trying to get to? And once you have the realization like, oh, it feels like this is the easy path by falling back on this drug or this alcohol or whatever. Oh, but it's not actually because that's just keeping me stuck in the same place and the only way to get 
where I'm actually trying to go is by doing what feels like the hard path, but I can reassure myself like, oh, but it's actually the only way to get where I'm trying to go. So it doesn't actually matter that that other way is easier. It's irrelevant because it's, it's not taking me to the important destination. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Wow. I, I think we could, we could continue to keep, keep going and talking and, <laughs> and there's so much more. I know we could talk about this topic because the brain is, you know, so complex. There's so many pieces, but we're learning so much more about it. So before you go though, I always like to ask one question of my guests that maybe someone out there is struggling. Maybe they're struggling with depression and you want to tell them one thing. If you could tell them one thing, what would you want them to know? Yeah. Just that it's okay to struggle. A lot of times when we're very goal-oriented, we like the fact that we are struggling makes us think there's something wrong with us. And it's like, it's okay to struggle. And you don't need to figure it out all at once. You just need to make one small change because the brain is malleable and can be reshaped. And just by making that small change that is different than your default of, you know, sitting on your couch and ruminating, that can start to create a path forward. So wherever depths that you're in, if you can acknowledge like, yep, this is where I am and that's okay. And then redirect your attention to just doing anything that you can do. Uh, I think that's one of the most powerful messages to remember. Oh, thank you. And before you go, I just want to acknowledge your loss of your, your friend and, and missing her and all the hardship that I'm sure came with that as well. And, but also really thankful that you took that and, and put it into this book so others can be helped who may be struggling. Thank, so yeah. I just really appreciate that. I mean, this is one of the things that I, I realized is like, you can't always control the terrible events that happen to you or around you or to people that you care about. All you can do is, is decide what you're going to do next with that. And so it was this tragic experience, but I'm grateful that I can learn lessons from that to share with others. And so it's really weird feeling to think like, oh, you can have gratitude about like what you were able to do with your tragic experience. It doesn't mean I couldn't control that. Like all I could do is what I do next. And sometimes we're so focused on, I didn't want this bad thing to happen. So yeah, but when it comes to the things that you can't control, or that your limitations, the only useful path is to accept and treat yourself with kindness. And then to ask like, okay, well, what can I, what can I do about this next? Yeah. Thank you, Alex, so much for coming on to the addicted mind. If people want to get a hold of you, where can they go? How can they connect with you? Yeah. My website, alexcorbphd.com is probably a great place or on Instagram at Alex Corb PhD. I've got some great free resources like the six steps guide to 
overcoming overthinking, which because a lot of people get stuck right. <laughs> ruminating in their own head a lot. And uh, I've got a free uh, brief video course on like the overview of the upward spiral. Yeah, people can find the book uh, or there's a workbook as well, you know, anywhere where, you know, you find books or right. audio books. Amazon, or wherever. Pindles. I will put all those links in the show notes as well at theaddictedmind.com. So you can go there too and, and get it all. Alex, I just thank you for your time coming on. I know we went a lot longer than we planned, but it was such a good conversation. I wanted to keep talking That's, to you. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> I talk a lot as well. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addictive Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictivemind.com. So go and check that out. And if you got a lot out of this episode, please share it with a friend and click the subscribe button whenever podcast app you use so you can get the latest episodes. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.